One Cloud business is ready for its close-up, and two CEOs are in the spotlight. It's a busy Monday, so let's get to work. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today from Motley Fool Canada, it's Jim Gillies. Good to see you. Good to be seen, Chris. Here at the Motley Fool, we focus on businesses, but we also pay attention to the people who are leading the businesses that we are shareholders of. And we have two longtime business leaders that we need to talk about today. And we're going to start with Howard Schultz, because today is his first day on the job as interim CEO of Starbucks. If you're scoring at home, this is his third time in the corner office. And he's not waiting. Uh, unlike most interim CEOs, his first act of business is uh, to suspend the share buyback plan that Starbucks had announced, I believe it was last year, to the tune of $20 billion that they had allocated. And Schultz and the executive team saying, we're going to suspend this buyback plan. This frees up money to invest in future growth of the business. You and I were chatting earlier today. I get the sense you think this is a good move. I do. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna commend you on being able to say interim CEO of Starbucks with a straight face. Uh, I am I am someone who remembers the last time Howard came back as interim CEO of Starbucks and lasted for nearly a decade, I believe. Uh, I thought as interim CEO, his job is to find the next leader of the business. I suspect he finds that leader of the business every time he looks in the mirror. Uh, so uh, just putting it out there, I think I think Howard's around for a while. But I also happen to think that's a good thing if he is, and I kind of hope he's around for a while because uh, Howard Schultz has demonstrated in two tenures, a multi-year, if not decade ten tenures with Starbucks, that this man knows how to grow this business. And so if Howard Schultz says, we are going to cut the buy, and I, I'm going to point out that, that that $20 billion buyback on the table is about 20% of Starbucks market cap. So that was, it was a potentially seriously large buyback. Now, I note that uh, if you have been, and I know, Chris, you are a shareholder, as am I. I know you were a shareholder three years ago, as am I, or as was I, I suppose. I know that all we have made from our Starbucks over these past three years is basically the 2% dividend yield. Uh, this is in spite of, of Starbucks spending about $8 billion in share buybacks over that time. I understand we had the pandemic through that. Um, but, you know, the they've not done a lot of buybacks. They've only done about $8 billion over the past three years, roughly, it's since the end of uh, since the end of June 2019. Uh, so almost three years. And, you know, that's that's maybe money that was wasted a little bit. But. I, I to, to quote to a couple of our colleagues, um, you know, because it was purchased at higher valuations. I am a fan of Starbucks investing in themselves, investing in their stores, not necessarily new store growth, but in systems and their existing stores as well, updating and improving their stores, improving uh, benefits for their for their service providers, their members, like you know, the, the team members, like you know, the, the staff, the people who work there. Uh, I've always thought of uh, Starbucks as a uh, a fairly good employer. I'd like to see better for the employees there because then it leads to happier members, happier customers, happier shareholders eventually. Uh, and so I am, while I'm giving Howard a bit of a hard time, like he cares what I think, uh, while I give Howard a bit of a hard time, I, I actually 
I don't think buybacks here were a large, large enough amount to really worry about. I mean, they've spent just slightly more on buybacks than they have on dividends. And we know they like to raise their dividend every year. I suspect they're going to keep on doing that. That's the return. Uh, and I also note that over the past three years, the buybacks have only taken out, they've taken out about four and a half percent of the stock count, uh, which, you know, is a meaningful buyback. And that's a good thing. Like we we talk about companies uh, as cannibals that eat themselves over time. So Apple's one, Home Depot's another one, eBay's another one. Uh, companies that buy back meaningful and shrink their share counts. And so if you still hold the shares, you are a, a comparatively larger percentage owner. Um, and I think Starbucks will eventually come back to buybacks. But for now, if Howard think this, thinks this is the the best course of action, I feel like I'm just a Howard Homer here. Uh, if Howard thinks this is the best course of action, and to me that suggests more that he is going to be sticking around for a while to guide his baby, um, I am fine with taking my dividend, seeing what he does, because it they're making lots of cash. That's not the issue. Um, the issue is, yeah, let's get this thing uh, righted and and we'll come back to buybacks in a few years. I appreciate you pointing out, because it's true, there are companies that do a very effective job of buybacks that uh, it, it is a meaningful way to reward shareholders. This is, and I say this as someone who has owned shares of Starbucks for more than 20 years, this is my least favorite way the company allocates money historically. Um, and uh, I wouldn't bet against them doing it effectively in the future, but I saw this news this morning. By the way, the stock is down 5%. Well, on this news, I'm not entirely sure that move is warranted. In a few minutes, we'll get to another uh, stock moving in the opposite direction that I also wonder if it's really warranted. But uh, when you look at the stock down 5%, I know it's not a huge drop, but I, I looked at that and I thought, boy, for people who wanted to get shares of Starbucks at a 5% discount, uh, congratulations. Today's your day. Yes, and and I note. Uh, I, it's funny you say that about buybacks. You impugn buybacks in that fashion. I, Did I impugn. Wait favorite. a minute. I am, you impugn. I, I don't think I impugned, impugned it. I impugn. <laughs> <You> chastised. <laughs> I impugn Starbucks track record with this. Yeah, Every probably, other probably fair, way, actually. with the exception of the investments they've made in food over the year. Uh, every other way Starbucks has spent money has been better spent money than the money on buybacks. The, the the food they never get right exactly um, yeah no I look I, I I quite like buybacks um, they are a in some aspects a more tax efficient means of returning capital to shareholders presuming the share count goes down I can give you a long list of companies where they're blowing every penny of free cash flow the share count's going up that's uh, suboptimal uh, but I note that uh, if you throw out kind of the the couple of months around um, the couple of months in like the the March of 2020, really, you know, the end of February 2020 to say going into May 2020. So you know, there was something happening in the world at that point, right? You know, the the depths of the COVID initial pandemic panic. Um, you're you're buying you're buying Starbucks at its lowest valuation on an enterprise value to EBITDA in the past decade. Like uh, it was about 13 times EV EBITDA heading into today. As you say, it's down five percent already. Um, that's the low aside from over the past decade, aside from that, uh, that chunk of uh, time when the, the pandemic was kind of spooling up and no one knew what was going on. Uh, the other aspect, of course, is that, I, as I said, I believe the dividends 
they have a history, a track record of raising them annually. They're currently paying 49 cents a quarter. Uh, this They paid three quarters of 49 cents, so they'll probably pay one more. Uh, then I would not be surprised by a hike. Um, so, and, and because they, they've pretty much, I think they brought out the dividend in 2010 and have pretty much raised every year since. So, uh, I still think investors will get, uh, get their take. Uh, like you, I think today's valuation is, um, interesting. Uh, it's been a while since I've added to my Starbucks holdings, but, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm on board with this one. So an SEC filing. Uh, shows that Tesla CEO Elon Musk has taken a 9% passive stake in Twitter. This news has sent shares of Twitter up more than 25% today. Before we dig into this, can you just, because um, you did this for me earlier today, can you, for the dozens of listeners, the difference between um, an SEC filing uh, a passive stake versus an active stake? It's funny because I actually uh, recommended a company last week in the service that I run, Hidden Gems Canada, where I had to literally go through this exact uh, differential. So I'm going to pretty much read from what I wrote. Uh, there are two primary types of Form 13s that we will see filed with the SEC, both denote that the filing party has accumulated at least a 5% stake in the underlying company. Uh, that is a level of ownership that is deemed significant enough that it must be disclosed to the public. However, the suffix, the letter suffix, is what differentiates. A 13G, as in gold, a 13G, don't, don't impugn that there's something with gold there. 13G is one that denotes a passive stance. Uh, the filing entity is simply bought and is holding shares that amount to 5% of the total outstanding, but has no designs on control of the company. So when you see, and I'm going to apologize for my dog making noise, uh, when you see, uh, say, like an ETF kingpin type company like Vanguard or BlackRock, uh, and you know, practically every February, you know, they file they file a 13G or a 13G slash A, which is an amendment to a 13G on practically every large company in America. Uh, when you see that, it's because they run, you know, trillions of dollars in index funds, passive index. The index says, "Thou shalt hold three percent of Starbucks," so they buy three percent of Starbucks. That's what that's what a passive listing is. Uh, so they have no designs on controlling the company. A 13D also signals a 5 plus percent position, but comes with added requirements of disclosure, primarily concerning the purpose of the transaction. So when you see a 13D, as in dog, it's generally an activist or some other interested party looking to force some change, influence the business itself. So Musk filed a 13G. So Musk files this document, says, I've got 9% of Twitter, but it's a passive stake. So why are all of these other people piling into shares of Twitter? Uh, because I could see it if they thought he's going to write this ship, he's going to push for a subscription business model. This is going to change the business of Twitter. But it's a, if it's a passive stake, why is everyone reading into this seemingly that he's going to change the business. Isn't that the question? Yes. <laughs> and the problem with that is, is that I did, did Musk file the wrong filing? Is this a stunt? Is he trying to like, like longtime fools? No, I'm not the biggest Elon Musk fan. So I'm going to try to not let that trip over here. But, you know, I, I think if he, he's going to have to be very careful because if he is seen, well, he has to be very careful if you believe the SEC will have any um, teeth to it. 
uh, which might be another topic. Um, but if, if he is seen to be engaging in practices that are uh, looking to, you know, that are perceived to be looking to exert control over the business, over the, um, the course of the company, um, then he's filed an incorrect filing and he's going to get slapped for that. He should have put in the 13D. I, I'm a little shocked that his lawyers didn't tell him to put in a 13D anyway, but then that would send a whole other message that, you know, here, here's Elon Musk, who is, regardless of my personal feelings about the man, I think he is an absolute master user of Twitter. He's an absolute master of seizing and controlling, creating a narrative. I, I, I note with some, some sarcasm, some sardonic viewpoints. I note that, uh, you know, this past weekend, Tesla, Elon Musk's primary vehicle, no pun intended to, to talk with the public on Tesla released delivery, their, their car deliveries for the first quarter. They released those numbers. They were mildly disappointing. Uh, and as well as they changed the definition of what they call it uh, a delivery. So, you know, are these delivery numbers com directly comparable to a year ago or the prior quarter? We don't know. They changed the verbiage and what defines a, a delivery. I noticed that both of those news stories, which I thought were reasonably, um, reasonably things we should be talking about or that people should be looking at, uh, they're both gone because all people can talk about is Musk buys 9.2% of Twitter. Uh, and about a couple weeks ago, he was publicly speculating on whether Twitter was a force for good in terms of free speech. Uh, he publicly speculated on Twitter about starting his own competing offering, which sure, whatever. Um, I, I think this is an interesting, as I said, I think Musk is an absolute master at seizing the narrative and defining where the narrative is going to go. And this would be a good example of that. Uh, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Um, with this move, with shares of Twitter up 27 percent today. That means that in the past 12 months, shares of Twitter are now down only 22 percent. <laughs> yeah. You, but I, I want to go back to Tesla. This is we, we can end here. That was another one of my thoughts this morning, that if you're a Twitter shareholder, great. You're having a wonderful day. I'm not a Tesla shareholder. If Do you think the average Tesla shareholder is happy about this? Uh, wouldn't they rather he be spending more time on Tesla? <laughs> Um, yes, uh, the, the concept of scorecarding that stock price is the only thing that matters, uh, I think is probably what's driving the average Tesla shareholder right now, because the stock price is over the past few years is up substantially. It's not really gone anywhere for much of the last year, but I think it's an eight or 10 bagger over the past three or four. Um, you know, I, I as I, I am someone who has been both long and short Tesla in the past, uh, I am currently longer today via index funds and look through exposure to Tesla than I've ever been, you know. So I suppose I have a vested interest in 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 saying, "Hey, Tesla, go." Um, I think the average Tesla shareholder looks at the share price and says, "Yeah, go get him, Elon." Uh, I I don't think the nuance uh, between a 13G and a 13D filing is entering anybody's. Uh, you know, thought process aside from, you know, poor folks like us who do this for a living. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what, um, if, if, if Tesla's share price were to, I don't know, uh, drop 50%, I just pull a number out of the thin air. If Tesla's share price were to drop 50% over the next quarter, um, I think that's when you'd see people complaining, oh, he's distracted by Twitter. Um, 
until then, I don't think it matters. I, I, I think, but I do think this is, I, we, we know that he uh, got sanctioned in 2018 for the 420 funding secured thing, which, you know, some folks would consider to be securities fraud. We know he paid a, we know he paid a fine, $20 million fine for both himself and on behalf of Twitter for that. He was supposed to have a so-called Twitter sitter, sorry, on behalf of Tesla. Uh, he's supposed to have a so-called Twitter sitter to, uh, you know, oversee his tweets, which I don't think uh, that's the most lenient Twitter sitter in history. Um, you know, I, we know right now he is currently engaged with the SEC uh, on that prior settlement. I know he's trying to, um, you know, maybe loosen some of the strings there. Um, and with 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 the scrutiny that he is he is uh, attracted to himself. I think it's in his best interest to be real careful about his filings and about real careful what he does. So uh, hopefully he says nothing about his stake in Twitter. Just he has it. OK, it's there. And he says nothing and we hear nothing. And then at that point, you know, he's got the money. I mean, have at it, man. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing to say. But I I, I hope for the sake of Twitter, share, of, they had both start with T, right? I hope for the sake of Tesla shareholders that he that he does that that he that he that he does in good faith keep it passive and just you know because there's nothing that says he can can't do this uh that he keeps it passive and twitter just goes on its merry way and hopefully twitter then you know under the new ceo um starts to make some real progress and monetizing the business because as you say chris until today I mean, you know, basically you were buying, you were basically buying Twitter at the IPO price on Friday. And since the IPO was in 2013, I believe that's not a compliment. So Jim Gillies, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. One question investors have had for years about Twitter, Tesla and Starbucks has to do with just how big their market opportunities are. Social media, electric vehicles, and coffee are about as different a set of businesses as you can find, but the underlying question is both common and important. Take cloud storage, for example. It's a huge market opportunity, but it can be difficult to figure out how competing businesses are unique from one another. Today, Asit Sharma and Brian Stoffel take a closer look at cloud infrastructure company DigitalOcean through the lens of its competition and how DigitalOcean is serving its customers differently than Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure. Okay, Brian, investors have been hearing for years how competitive the cloud computing and storage market is. But outside of very familiar cloud titans, which seem to completely dominate this industry, like Amazon Web Services, Microsoft's Azure, Google Cloud, IBM Cloud, Oracle cloud infrastructure, you get the picture. Are there any other companies that can even compete in this space? Well, Asad, I think it depends on what we mean when we say, can they compete in the space? Because there is this market that you don't hear about that often unless you're directly involved in this business. And that is meeting the cloud needs, the cloud infrastructure needs for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and that's where the company we're talking about today, DigitalOcean, comes in. Now, it's hardly the only player in its field, but what makes this company unique is that they're really geared towards your small and your small companies that need some type of cloud presence, 
but working with Amazon or Azure just doesn't make sense. And I was a little bit surprised to find out myself. Now, I'm a former teacher, so I've been a teacher and I've worked for The Motley Fool. You don't want me touching your cloud anything, okay? But when I researched it, what was interesting to me was just how um, difficult it can be to use AWS and Azure and how it really requires a company to have a team of IT professionals to make it work. Now, obviously, your big companies like Netflix uses these guys. They've got the people to do that, so that's not a concern. But if you have like a small startup, say, architecture firm, you can't hire five people just to handle your cloud infrastructure because you might be a two- or three-person organization. And there's a lot more of these two- or three-person organizations out there than we might think. Add all that together, and that's what DigitalOcean's after. Yeah, Brian, what's really interesting to me is how DigitalOcean has positioned itself to this extremely crucial segment of cloud purchasers. CEO Yancy Spruill of DigitalOcean was recently talking about the sheer numbers associated with this market in both a recent earnings call and an investors conference. He said that by the end of this decade, there are going to be some 100 million small and medium-sized businesses around the world, and there are, in addition, 50 million individual software developers that are associated with these businesses um, that will be working on projects by the end of this decade. So, when you take this big group together, what do you think the spend is? It's big. So, the estimates are, according to Yancey Spruill, that there will be $100 billion spent annually over the next several years just for cloud infrastructure. Um, that relates to small and medium-sized businesses. So, to me, this is almost a niche space, but it's really hard to gain traction. And the way that DigitalOcean has gone about this is to just cast a wide net. They've got some 600,000 customers. They got a, a very wide marketing funnel. You can start with free tutorials on the site, and the company will follow you along for years, potentially, before you maybe join a startup firm and spend the first penny. Uh, but having this sort of niche focus and concentration on small startups growing customers is great because it's a space that Amazon Web Services and, and Microsoft Azure, Oracle, et cetera, it's not really profitable for them to touch because it doesn't really move the needle for their huge operations. One last thing um, I'll say on this point is Yancy Spruill had a really nice case study example he's been citing. There was a company in Tel Aviv, a startup, just the type you're talking about, Brian. They had eight people uh, when the company started. They were spending 20 bucks a month. Fast forward eight years, they're spending $170,000 a month. Now, not every customer is going to grow like this, but the idea is to scale with these customers, even if that spend goes from 10 to 20 bucks a month to the hundreds. You have a, a nice business here. Yeah, and you know... I like that story, Austin. And the one thing I just want to say with that is, is it kind of reminds me of Shopify. And here's what I mean by that. I always argued that the, the, the there's a lot of detractors who said Shopify has 2 million merchants. Like most of those are just garbage. And the fact of the matter is that's probably true. But the point is, is they just need to catch the black swan. And what I mean by that is it's almost impossible to know What's the small startup today that's going to be a big, important company organization tomorrow? We might think that we can predict that looking back, but we can't. Because if you could, like, you, you'd be a genius. 
Um, and so instead, I said, you know, Shopify just needs to cast a wide net, get a whole bunch of potential customers, and then grow alongside them. And in fact, there are three different companies. I know Oatly is one of them that started their business on Shopify and are now publicly traded companies. It's the same dynamics with DigitalOcean. And one of the things, Asit, you and I talked about is the company needs to make sure that as those as those customers get bigger and bigger, that they continue spending on DigitalOcean and don't leave wholesale for Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure. Very true. Um, Brian, I wanted to ask you, you know, we've talked about the whales in this industry. Some call them cloud titans. Um, some call them hyper-cloud providers. But DigitalOcean, if it's swimming below those, does it have to worry about any smaller competitors? Does it have this space all to itself? So, no, it doesn't have this space all to itself, but it, it still has a unique position. So, for instance, there's one provider, Heroku, that was bought out and is now a subsidiary of Salesforce, and they are more of a high-end service. When you look at the stats for DigitalOcean, they tell you about customer spending, or you can just go on their webpage and look at their prices, and it's like $5 for this product per month, $10. Like, it truly is cheap, and your average revenue per user is below $100. So we're talking about some very simple things that people are buying. Um, whereas Heroku, they start about like $250 if you go on their website. So they're, they're tailoring to altogether different ones. The two that stick out to me, one is Linode, which is, um, which is a subsidiary of Akamai. And then there's another one, Vulture, that's privately owned that just released that it has about $125 million in annual recurring revenue. To put that in perspective, that puts it at about a quarter the size of DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is much bigger. And Linode, we don't really, we can't really get a beat on how big their business is because they're a subsidiary of a much larger company and doesn't need to be broken out like that. Um, that being said, I still think that we can follow the numbers to see how it's doing. And this is not a one winner take all category. If it was, then Microsoft, Azure, and Google Cloud wouldn't exist because Amazon Web Services had a seven-year head start. And they still, understandably, not a knock against them, don't have 100% of the market for those enterprise customers. You mentioned numbers. Let's talk about a few numbers, and then I've got a couple of big picture questions for both of us. These numbers look pretty decent to me. So DigitalOcean is a company that's growing between 30 and 40% on an annualized basis. In the last quarter that they reported, this was in February, their fourth quarter of 2021, uh, their top line increased about 37% to roughly 120 million bucks. They have, uh, as you mentioned, an, what they call an annual run rate revenue. It's pretty similar to annualized recurring revenue um, of almost half a billion dollars. They are running at a loss, but this company is getting closer and closer to break even. It's a negative operating margin of about 8%. Turned cash flow positive this year, and in fact, gross profit has been growing in some quarters at a, a rate that's faster than the sales acceleration. So, improving gross margin uh, profitability. I think this is a company that that looks interesting simply because it's not a hyper growth company that's loss making. You know, it's established its niche. It's got some pretty decent metrics when you compare them to other software as a service or platform as a service type companies. The leadership team I should mention, which is not only made up of Yancy Sproul but uh, Carly Brantz, who's chief marketing officer, came from a company called SendGrid. 
uh, which th this team sort of scaled up and sold to another public company, Twilio. Uh, so a lot of elements here of a successful company. But given that, Brian, I wanted to, to ask you, is this a, a company that you'd invest in? Why or why not? So right now I don't own shares. I, I don't plan on owning them anytime soon either, but it's not because there aren't a lot of compelling things going on here. Part of it just has to do with the fact that it's much harder for me to gauge how wide the moat is around DigitalOcean's business. And that's because I'm, I, I'm not involved in cloud infrastructure. Personally, I don't work on that. It's easier for me to understand the net dollar retention rate of some other tools because I can see why switching would be so hard. But I said, I, I don't think it's uncommon for us to hear about a large company switching, switching from, for instance, Azure to AWS. Like that happens. And so I don't know how big are these switching costs? Is it a real moat or is it not? I will say that their dollar-based net retention has gone up significantly. It used to hover at about 100%. And a lot of people might think 100% for a SaaS company, that's not very good. But you need to look at this in the same way that we look at a HubSpot. By that, what I mean is HubSpot focuses on companies that have between two and 200 or two and 2,000 employees, small companies. Um, and if you focus on those, most small companies are going to go out of business. And that's okay. That's no fault of HubSpot, no fault of DigitalOcean. So that keeps that dollar-based net retention much lower. But it's up over 115% now. That is a really important increase that's more important that's more impressive than what HubSpot's been able to do. And I'll just throw another number that you really want to watch is the average revenue per user. And it's gone up from mid 40s to mid 60s over just the last year. And that, again, is a really impressive increase. Um, so those, those are some of the things that I think you need to watch. But again, I'm sitting on the sidelines, not because I don't like the company, but because as an investor, you get to be super picky. There's 4,000 stocks for you to pick from, and you know a portfolio of 20 to 30 is good. So it's one of those things where you shouldn't knock a company for not being included. Just focus on what is included. Yeah, you know, Brian, you just sold me on investing in this company the last couple of minutes talking about their great uh, customer retention metrics, despite the fact that they probably see a lot of churn in that base because the nature of, of having small customers. Um, our investing styles are sort of different in that your portfolio is much more concentrated than mine. I'm not really ashamed to say this, but I say it, I have like 65 different companies that I invest in. And so I could see myself taking a small position in DigitalOcean to um, follow it along, maybe invest some more as they keep growing and the strength of that moat becomes more apparent. So this is a company I, I could I can definitely consider putting some money behind. Maybe not bet the farm here, but I love the fact that it has a solid financial profile. This has been so much fun, as always, to chat with you um, and uh, look forward to the next time. Thanks, Asset. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, conversation about kids and money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.